Connecticut Democrats, or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back, everyone, for this week's episode of the CT Democrats podcast. I'm Mike Cerulli. I'm Tania Baker. And I'm David Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. So this week on the show, I had the chance to finish out our five-person roster for our Congress members. Uh, we've had four of the five on the show so far, and this week we complete the uh, five with Congressman Jim Himes, who is my congressman. Dave, I know he's your congressman tonight. Is he your congressman? No, he's not. She gets Rosa. And my congressman Rosa, yeah. Ooh, lucky. <laughs> we, we talk a bit about the, the differences between the the fourth district and Rosa's district uh, a little bit uh, as it relates to pizza mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did, Jim did not seriously try to make an argument that the fourth CD has better pizza, did he? No, he didn't. I actually, I asked him as I do with all of our guests, I said, you know, help me, help me plan a day in your, in your district or this, the area you represent. Now it's a little tough because I, I live in the same area Jim lives in. So I, I sort of know where I'd want to go. But the very first thing he said was he said, well, if you want pizza, you'd probably have to go to New Haven. <laughs> there, is a, there is a Pepe's location in Fairfield though. You could get yep. the best of both yep. worlds. And, and but it's, it's not going to take taste as good as New Haven though. Mm, you think, no, you think the home base is still the best? All Absolutely. Right. <laughs> no, yeah, same with the, the new Sally's in Stanford. I, I definitely will give it a try, but I think that 100-year-old or however old it is oven, that's just, you know, it, it cooks out the best pizza. So we had a great conversation, talked about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, talked about the election, what's on the line. And of course, me being me, I had to ask him, he was in a hearing a couple months ago about UFOs and I had to ask him about that. So uh, if, you're, if you're interested in a conversation about pizza, UFOs, and uh, you know, sa- saving the American economy, setting us up for the success in the 21st century, uh, this might be a conversation you wanna listen to. Fantastic. And then uh, Tanaya and I talked with Trevor Crow. She is the candidate for the state Senate district uh, that encompasses Greenwich, uh, part of Stanford, and most of New Canaan. Yeah, I think that was a great conversation we had with Trevor. Uh, she was very, to me, she was very optimistic, even though she's in a, in a district that was redistricted to be more Republican. But she was very optimistic, struck with her time going to doors and how uh, she relates to candidates. We also talked a little bit because me and her actually met on the um, at the Yale Campaign School. So we talked a little bit about that. And I think this was a great conversation overall. We'll get to that in just a minute, but first we'll kick things off with Mike's talk with Congressman Jim Himes. All right, folks, we are so glad to have on the show today uh, our Congressman from the 4th Congressional District, my home district, so I'm going to be biased in this one a little bit. Congressman Jim Himes, Congressman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. So I want to get right into it here. Um, you're running for re-election. You're on the ballot this year, as you are every two years. Um, how's the campaigning been going? What have you been hearing from folks uh, in the fourth district? Well, campaigning's going pretty well. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, it's just we're just we're speaking just after the sort of traditional uh, Labor Day kickoff. So of course mm-hmm. there'll be all kinds of door knocking and phone calls, and people will get tired of seeing the stuff on the advertisements on TV or stuff. But, you know, in some ways, what's more interesting, um, and I feel this very closely uh, from a house standpoint, right? Um, the conventional wisdom has been for a very long time um, that the Democrats would lose the majority in the house. And, um, you know, that conventional wisdom has changed pretty dramatically in the last couple of months. Um, mm-hmm. And and not necessarily because of anything that we did, although we did some pretty <laughs> spectacular things, right? Yep. I mean, uh, we'll you know, that, yeah. the, uh, 
the attack on Biden, there were a whole bunch of them coming from the other side. But one of them was that he was just this, you know, kind of old guy who wasn't focused. Well, son of a gun. I mean, I've been doing this a little while and I can't remember two years in which there has been more legislation uh, for veterans, for climate change, for drug prices, for infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I both remember four years of Donald Trump. The joke was, when do we finally do infrastructure? When's infrastructure <laughs> week? Well, it was yeah, during the Biden yeah. administration. So between that and the Supreme Court decision, of course, denying an awful lot of women, uh, you know, bodily autonomy, taking right. away their rights to control their reproductive life. The, the environment is very different now than it was even just two or three months ago. And I, I don't want to say that that's good because, you know, obviously the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court and the threat to Roe v. Wade and the, on the horizon, the threat to marry who you want or, you know, even to get access to birth control. That's really scary and very bad stuff. But it's, it's caused a lot of people to wake up and say, holy smokes, I'm just I'm not going to support the Republican Party if it means taking my rights away. For sure. I mean, I know you and I have both been out there a lot on the campaign trail. And those those August crowds are usually pretty sparse, especially with the heat. But this year, I mean, there's been a ton of events where there's 20, 30, 40 people that are getting ready to go knock doors or write postcards. So um, I want to talk to you a bit about that legislative momentum you mentioned. Um, there's, there's been so much of it that I feel like we haven't even had a chance to break down what's in each one. Right. And I know that from your perch on the Financial Services Committee, you know, you played a big role in passing the Inflation Reduction Act, and you mentioned some of the climate portions in there. From your perspective, I feel like we talk about all these things in the news, sometimes it's complicit in this, where they say, well, this is a $400 billion bill, or this is a $1.5 trillion bill. And they really don't contextualize it in the fact that we're investing uh, in in future technologies and stuff. You know, Most of these programs, even the ones from when you were first in Congress in 2008, 2010, 2012, you know, when they attract negative press attention for stuff because they've given money to, say, a Solyndra, the media never covers that, you know, those programs also fund companies, you know, called Tesla and, and, and other, you know, other key industries. So talk a bit about your perspective on uh, both the IRA, maybe the CHIPS Act, maybe the infrastructure bill going back a few months ago um, from your perch as someone who understands that we're not just throwing money out the door right now. We're actually investing it in future technologies that are going to yield, you know, if you look at past results, pretty serious returns and pretty serious results. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, there's a lot in that question. Um, mm -hmm. So let's let's sort of talk about two or three things that you just highlighted there. You know, I, I do think it's worth keeping a fairly bright line between investment and spending, because um, we've done a lot of both in the last couple of years, last three or four years, really. Uh, we had to spend a lot to uh, to, you know, manage the catastrophe, which was the pandemic. You know, we sent hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to people in the form of economic impact payments, in the form of, uh, you know, PPP loans, which were ultimately forgivable. Um, I guess you can make an argument that some of that is investment in, you know, keeping people <laughs> well fed right, and everything. Right. But, you know, it is, I think it's worth being disciplined because for precisely the reason you talk about, which is that, you know, we ought to think about infrastructure investment. And, you know, we passed the biggest infrastructure bill, uh, I think, probably since the Eisenhower administration to finally, finally, finally invest in our infrastructure. You can be grumpy about that spending, but, you know, just the way you and I invest in our education or we might invest in a business, that's going to have huge payoffs down the road. And on the flip side, if you don't make it, you know, if it's if it takes you an hour and a half to drive from your home in Fairfield to your job in Stanford, eventually you're going to say hell with this. You know, I'll either move to, you know, whatever, mm. South Carolina or I'll move to Germany where they are investing in their infrastructure. So I, I, I do think it's worth making that distinction because we actually have been doing a lot of investing um, in our uh, in our infrastructure. And the other one you raise is actually really interesting, the, 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 the CHIPS Act. 
Um, you know, the CHIPS Act was $54 billion of uh, bill, if you want to start with the number. And you're right. You know, the number is not the important thing. The important <laughs> thing is what it does. Exactly. Um, you know, the CHIPS Act, it's a super interesting thing, right? Because, you know, Democrat or Republican, we have a free market system here. It's a, you could call it a modified free market system. But, you know, for the first time in a very long time, um, everybody said, hey, you know, we, we, we actually got to make some public investment in a private sector in the mm -hmm. chips business. And why, how did we get there? We got there because we realized that pretty much everything in our lives, all of the technology that you and I are communicating on with right now, and, and then, you know, the cars that we drive and the planes that we fly, and even more frighteningly, pretty much every piece of equipment that our military uses, our intelligence, it all, mm -hmm. it all contains chips. And guess what? Most of those chips are made in Taiwan. And we know that Taiwan is both, you know, at the end of some pretty complicated supply chains, if you're going through a global pandemic and very much a threat from the nation of China. So it's a pretty interesting thing, because I think if 10 years ago you'd said to a Republican, hey, we're going to invest in uh, private industry. Uh, they would have run the Solyndra story. You made reference right, to this. Right. Oh, well, now you're in the business of picking winners and losers. You can't pick winners and losers. <laughs> you're picking winners and losers. I heard that for the entire Obama administration. You're picking winners and losers. And now they're very much in the business of picking a winner. <laughs> we hope a winner, right? right, but, right. but the point is, and look, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know exactly where you do that and where you don't do that. But you know, the pandemic really showed us that uh, the world where anything that we use or buy is made in 20 different countries you know, with really weak supply chains, that's just not a good world to be in. So fascinating thing. But here's the good news. Wherever you come out on that debate, um, you know, a lot of that 54, 53 billion dollars is going to be invested in research and development. And, mm -hmm. you know, it gets pretty boring pretty quickly. People's eyes glaze <laughs> over. But again, all of the technology that you and I are using right now came because we made, you know, deep investments, often driven by the federal government in, in basic research, which led mm -hmm. to remarkable technologies. And so that's a pretty exciting piece of the whole uh, of the whole legislative uh, array that we've had in the last couple of months. We'll be back with more from Congressman Jim Hines, but first we're going to hear from Trevor Crow, who's running for state senate in District 36. Okay, Trevor, thank you for coming on our podcast. I wanted to start with just asking you, how has your experience been so far with your campaign? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. And so far, it's been really exciting. I've met absolutely amazing people. Um, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by how generous and open-minded and open-hearted and all the people that have come to help me and support me. I'm, I'm literally blown away. It makes me feel so good. And, and I remember when I first got started, one of, one of the people who was really supportive, she's like, you know, you're not alone. And I was like, Oh, thank goodness. That made me feel so much better. <laughs> Well, that's good. I was going to I was going to actually ask you, how has it been with like, especially with redistricting and being in a in a town that was more mixed and now is more Republican? How has it been on the doors with like navigating through all of that? Yeah, um, I certainly have come across some doors that were very Republican, really were not interested in having a conversation. And and I have learned to walk away and not try to get into anything ridiculous. And I have to say, I've had a, a more than a few conversations where, you know, I do think I moved the needle. We had a, we had a respectful, kind um, interaction. Um, I listened carefully. Hopefully the other person listened. Um, maybe I gave them a little different perspective and maybe might have persuaded them to move in my direction. 
So we'll see. I mean, I've been working the doors hard and I believe deep in my heart, the only way to get voters is to see them eye to eye and tell them I hear them and I care and I'm I'm going to fight for them and our values and in Hartford when I get there, I'm manifesting. <laughs> um, but I, um, I've really, really enjoyed knocking on doors and even the difficult ones. I've, I learn a lot. Yeah. Sometimes you bring, you know, the issues you want to talk about to the campaign. But every once in a while, a campaign will bring issues to you as well. This uh, June 24th, the Supreme Court of course, ruled Roe unconstitutional. And um, all of a sudden, there was this really big thing to talk about. That is a big thing. And and um, uh, for me, besides the climate and democracy being at stake, which these are very, very big issues, uh, for women, having our reproductive rights strip, stripped away from us is incredibly scary. And we cannot take it for granted in Connecticut. And that is one of the things that I hear at the doors, which is, oh, we're blue. We don't have anything to worry about. There's some apathy there. And I really want everyone to understand. And it's not a women's issue. It's a human rights issue that um, the more that it is chipped away at, whether it's on a national level, state level, the worse off we all are. We cannot become second class citizens. My mom marched for Roe. She is 85. Um, I have a step-grandmother daughter. I can't believe that I may have to explain to her someday that she has fewer rights than I have had my entire life. I'm well, Roe was 73, right? I was born in 62. So my reproductive right, life, that is. So I'm I'm a huge champion for Roe. Um, people with uteruses do not need the government in their doctor's visits ever, should never be considered. And I'm appalled we're going in this direction and I will do everything in my power to fight that. And that's why that's really one of the big reasons why I'm running, because my opponent, Ryan Fazio, voted against HB 5414, which makes us Connecticut a safe haven. Now, we are at the forefront of this. And basically what it does is it stops any other state coming here to extradite and prosecute some person who came here for reproductive health care. And they're not allowed to prosecute the provider. Um, and I'm just appalled and overwhelmed by how horrifying it is when we hear stories like a 10-year-old girl having to leave the, her state of Ohio. She was raped. She needed health care somewhere else in a different state. What if she had come here? We didn't have a safe haven law. Ohio could have taken her, extradited her, and prosecuted her. So this is barbaric, barbaric to the deepest degree. And we have to fight it. That's just where I come from. Yeah, exactly. Because people people think like, oh, we are so safe. But I, I'm sure at a certain point in time, we never thought we were going to be here either. So it is important to have people in office who are going to fight for these type of rights. Well, the other part of that is we have Roe is codified, which is great. And if Stefanowski got elected and a few more Ryan Fazio's get elected, they're chipping. They've already said they're going to take away the minor part where a minor would now have to report to a parent. Um, many times minors get healthcare because a relative raped them. Mm -hmm. They may not be able to tell the people in their own home. So there's a whole bunch of things that we need to be aware of and be very sensitive to. And again, 
our rights are absolutely on the block if more Republicans get elected in this state. No doubt about it. They are extreme. So my other piece of this is if I'm elected and we maintain the same amount of uh, Democrats, then we have a supermajority, then we can introduce an, um, an amendment to the constitution, the state constitution, and then we can change it. Keep in mind, if there's a national ban, that supersedes everything, but at least we can do what we can do for our state of Connecticut. You're running in a district that includes, I think all of Greenwich, uh, part of Stanford and, and part of New Haven, uh, New Haven, what's New Canaan. New Canaan. <laughs> That'd be quite a district, huh? Greenwich, Stanford, and New Haven. We're going to jump over. That New, Haven. <laughs> New Canaan, New Canaan. And so uh, that district was uh, Republican for 70 years, I believe. And then uh, Alex Kasser ran uh, a couple of times and uh, picked up that seat for Democrats and then it flipped back. So this is a very swingy district. Um, mm -hmm. you, you spoke a little bit earlier about how that affects you know, or, or your experiences at the doors, picking up some of that swing uh, feel. Um, do you feel like you're you're a bit of a bellwether? And uh, um, what is what is it? What does your district say about Connecticut in general? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, we tend to lean more red and Republican. And over the past two plus years, we've had many new young families move from New York City and I've knocked on lots of doors with little tiny babies. Oh my God, the cutest, oh, yummy little things. Um, um, and these young new people tend to be more Democrat and we're, I am seeing more purple to be honest. And even though this, this uh, redistricting probably made us more red, you know what? I'm not seeing it. And again, we have this one issue that is really important and especially to women and dads with daughters, right? And the other part of it is I'm very fiscally conservative slash responsible. I was on Wall Street for five years. I have a Harvard Business School degree. I really do believe that when we bring business into the state, we get high paying good jobs tax rates come down, everybody benefits. And that that speaks pretty well to my demographic and I think to anybody, right? We all want good jobs here in the state. And the Lamont administration has done an excellent job with advanced CT and you know companies like ASML, who just said they were gonna put a thousand new jobs here. We have some very exciting businesses coming here and we're doing a better job fiscally. So I can lean on or be on the coattails uh, so to speak, of Lamont and the legislature who have had tax breaks for the first, well, hundred a historic tax break we've had. We've we've paid down unfunded liabilities. We have a AAA bond rating. We are we are have a, a surplus, I believe, at four point three billion dollars. Like just incredibly impressive. So most people that I talk to at the doors are really first of all interested in cost of living, the health of the state. They're pretty happy, even the Republicans with Lamont's performance. So between those two things, I felt much more stable, if you will, going to some of these more difficult, persuadable doors, because, you know, I have real numbers to stand on, you know, considering our um, unfunded liabilities, et cetera. We've made real progress. So that's where I feel like it's not as red, although again, there's going to be a group that are going to vote Republican, no matter what I say, 
no matter what I do or anybody does. Right. And that's, that's who they are and that's okay. That's, but my job is to get the Democrats out to vote, which are oftentimes in midterms, they are not quite as enthusiastic as our Republican counterparts and then get a whole bunch of people who are in the middle who are very upset about the Supreme Court and what they've ruled on. And it's not just Dobbs, it's it's the EPA, it's gun rights. Um, we saw somebody try to bring a, a gun, you know, um, I don't know, we, William Tong just talked about it, um, trying to ch challenge our um, Connecticut gun laws on assault rifles. And it was pulled almost immediately. I think the women who they were going on who turned out not to even be a gun owner. It was very strange. But what we're going to be seeing is more, more attacks on our value systems, the way we've set up here because of the Supreme Court's decisions. The first time we met mm -hmm. was at the campaign school at Yale. Mm -hmm. uh, and honestly, that was my first time like seeing you and I just kept thinking, wow, she's super humble. She's super passionate. Like you kept asking so many questions. You were so eager to learn. And I just think that's so important to have in a candidate, someone who just wants to learn and wants to know as much as they can. And that was such a fun time. If you want to talk a little bit about that experience. Oh, it's so much fun. And oh, talk about learning and needing to ask questions. And I still feel like it was like this fire hose of incredibly valuable information that just kind of came at us in the period of a week and it was so good. And it was funny the other night I woke up and I'm like, I had like the org chart, you know, in my head. I'm like, okay, where is everybody in the campaign team? And like, literally it's burnt into my brain. It's really <laughs> good though. <laughs> yeah, so oh my God. And we, I was going over my budget with my team this morning. We've got another meeting after this. And it's like, I am so glad I went to the Yale campaign school because I was given so many tools. I know more questions to ask, but again, I'm still such a newbie that I'm, yeah. I'm like, wait, wait, what? Slow down, help me out here, you know? For a little background, um, uh, the campaign school at Yale, although it's in our backyard here in New Haven, um, attracts candidates from literally all over the world to yeah. come and learn how to be a stronger candidate, how to campaign, what's involved. Um, and it's uh, predominantly women. It used to be entirely women, but I think it's in recent years has uh, uh, begun reaching out to male candidates as well. But uh, it isn't just an incredible asset. It just happens to be in our state. <laughs> um, but it is not a Connecticut only thing. So uh, a great resource for uh, anyone out there who might be thinking, maybe I should run someday. Something to look up is the campaign school at Yale and see uh, if their summer session is a, a good thing for you. Uh, I can name some people like I know Gabby Giffords um, was a graduate years and years ago. Uh, Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, who's just a fantastic member of Congress from Illinois. And then there are people from all over the world who have uh, attended as well. Um, how can people help you out in your campaign? Oh, yes. I could use canvassers. I could use more meet and greets. If you're in my district, I would love to come to your house and talk to uh, your friends about what I stand for. Um, I text banking, phone banking, pretty much any kind of activism really, really goes a long way. And you can find a way to sign up on my website, Trevor for Senate, which uh, the word Trevor and then forsenate.com. And under that, there's um, volunteer um, opportunities in there. And literally, you can phone back from your house. It's really easy. And some each week, I think it's 4.30 to 7, we have a weekly phone bank set up. 
Um, and sometimes we have star phone bankers with us. Will Haskell has uh, offered to get involved. We're, we've reached out to Car um, Mayor Caroline Simmons of Stanford. So we're hoping to get a lot of, you know, celebrity phone bankers as part of the group. It was great seeing you, Trevor. I thank you for coming on our podcast. It's always great to have you. And you're almost at the finish line. <laughs> you're almost yes. <laughs> well, sending you all lots, lots and lots of good positive energy. I'm just feeling it and the universe myself. I, I feel like we have a very good chance. It's going to be close. I, um, I'm sure of that. I know we're going to do this. And with everybody pulling for us and getting out the vote, we're going to do this. I have, I have it in my heart. I know it's going to happen. So thank you for having me on. We now return to the second half of Mike's talk with Congressman Jim Himes. I want to go a little deeper on the DC stuff because I feel like uh, for our audience, which is mostly Democrats and for most of the folks here in Connecticut, uh, if they're not seeing you at a campaign event, they're seeing you on television um, at one of these hearings. And I think in the early years, you mentioned <laughs> the Trump presidency, uh, you know, in the early years of that presidency, there were a lot of marquee hearings before your committee, intelligence committee. Um, and I just, I'm curious, I think maybe our listeners would be too. How do you approach in that hearing setting in DC? What do you see as your job in those five minutes? Because I think some of your Republican colleagues maybe see it as an opportunity to get on Fox News the following night. But I, I've, I've watched you open a bunch of those hearings and I think you ask, ask pretty substantive questions. So I'm just curious. I think folks would be interested to know that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a fair question. I don't want to just, uh, I've got plenty of other criticisms of the Republicans, including whether they're interested anymore in our democracy. So let me be fair and say that, you know, we Democrats are, are as guilty as the Republicans of using those five minutes as a, <laughs> right. you know, a clip on C-SPAN that gets put up on, uh, on, on Facebook. Um, you know, the bottom line is that the current structure of hearings doesn't work very well. I mean, it, ha it serves its purpose, but it's just too easy to turn it into pontificating and trying to get that viral moment. You know, maybe it was less intense before you could, you know, literally five minutes after you had your five minutes, um, uh, you know, put it up on Facebook and hope that it goes viral. Um, you know, in the committee that the speaker asked me to chair, the Committee on Economic Disparity, mm -hmm. uh, we're doing formal hearings, but I've done a lot of roundtables that provide for, you know, the time isn't strict. And, you know, so long as you're not taking too much time. It's designed to provoke dialogue, and and you know that we've we've learned a lot more. But yeah, let's face it: uh, very few members of Congress use those hearings to to learn things. Now, one thing that does happen that's important. Remember, a big part of congressional uh, the congressional role is oversight, and uh, right. you know, in five minutes, you can take a cabinet secretary and make them very concerned about something that Congress may not be excited about. Mm. Uh, you know, it's always usually the opposite party of the president that is doing that, but that's a valuable thing. Right. And, and maybe there's a sort of a, a, a slightly, you know, a cloudy line between that and pontificating. But yeah, yeah, you know, the other thing that makes me really sad, you're asking about the mechanics of what we do, Michael, and, you know, the same is true on floor debate. I mean, I look back at some of the debates, um, you know, 100 years ago or 150 years ago, and they had real debates, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, they really agreed on a topic and they had a debate. And now, you know, 95% of the action on the floor is just member after member after member arriving at the floor with their 500 words that they then read into the camera. And it has nothing to do necessarily with what the last person said, but right, right. I'd, I'd, I'd love to find a way. Um, you know, sometimes you see, if you look at the House of Commons in Great Britain, uh, you know, they seem to engage with each other more. 
So anyway, you know, there's probably if we if we wanted to create a 21st century legislature, there's probably a lot of changes that we would make that would help us do that. Right. Maybe have a, a speaker's questions or something like that. Yeah. Could. Yeah. You <laughs> Go, know, um, this is silly, but this yeah. is silly. But you know what would make the Congress a much smarter place? You don't get to read from notes. You know, I mean, watch C-SPAN, right? The five minute, you know, speeches that people give, if they're just reading, well, who cares? Who cares what your staffer wrote down for right, you? Right. You don't get yeah. to read from notes. If you care enough about the deficit or if you care enough about subpoena power or national security, if you can't speak off the cuff, you know, you care more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are there are those moments there when they're reading and you can very clearly see they're pronouncing some word for the first time. And they're yeah, like, pathetic. Yeah, Absolutely pathetic. Um, I, I do. I didn't write this in our prep, but I just there was one hearing that happened fairly recently that you were part of that I actually thought was very interesting. And I watched sort of every minute of it um, and I was texting with a friend about how I'm an interview today. And they said, you have to ask about this, this UFO hearing he was part of. <laughs> and, and I'm an aviation nerd. So I was watching it very closely. I thought you had good questions. And I think some of those questions drove to deeper points about how we sort of construct our, our, our sort of view on reality. But uh, in that hearing, um, sort of how do you approach an issue like that where it's like, you know, people's first instinct is to sort of laugh at that. But it is a serious, as you mentioned, a serious issue to do with our national defense and our, our to mention what we said before, our competitiveness uh, of some other foreign power has these, these things. I know I'm just bringing this on you, but just thoughts on that hearing and on that, that sort of process. No, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. And it's actually kind of an interesting question because, boy, the temptation is strong in a, you know, uh, in a hearing like that to <laughs> try to be funny or to try right, to find right. that viral moment or talk about little green men. But there is a very serious issue um, at two, two serious issues. Let's highlight two issues. Number one is, um, and just to make a very long story short, look, there's a there's a couple of examples of phenomena out there that we don't we just don't understand. We just don't know what it is. Um, mm -hmm. Now, by the way, of the thousands and thousands of you know Martian sightings that we you know, <laughs> 99 of them are are pretty well attributable to uh, you know weather balloons, to aircraft, right. to uh, Uncle Elmer on the porch with too much whiskey in them. Right. Um, you know, and so when you really get into these things, you discover that there's there's not much there. Um, but there, look, there were there are a couple, and and again, it's not Uncle Elmer on the po porch. But when an F eighteen is doing maneuvers over the Pacific Ocean, and sensors pick up something, we're not quite sure what it is. You know, you got to take that seriously for a whole bunch of reasons, including you know, as technologically as technologically advanced as we are, you know, it's not impossible that one of our adversaries, or quite frankly, a Google or somebody, could develop <laughs> technology that the yeah. government doesn't know about, and that is a concern for national security. So why is that important? That's why conspiracy theories and little green men and, you know, tinfoil hats doesn't mm -hmm. help because one of the things, and this is what I was sort of trying to do in my questions, you know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta sh shut down to the extent that we can, the conspiracy theories and the, you know, the stigma around it. So why, why is that? You're an F-18 pilot flying off the USS Abraham Lincoln in the Pacific and your sensors pick something up and you see something and it's not, you don't know what right. it is. We right. need you to land and we need you to go to your commanding officer and to tell the story without worrying that your fellow shipmates are going to, you know, ride you for the next four weeks about whether you encountered <laughs> yeah. little green men in, in Martian flying saucers. So there's a real important national security reason why we need to take this stuff seriously. Um, and, and let me, I said two reasons. The other reason, which maybe points to a, a, a much a, a scarier pathology in our politics today, you know, conspiracy theories can be harmless, you know, and mm -hmm. one of the things I was trying to get them, I was sort of trying to dispel the, we have aliens at Roswell <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> theory. That may be funny. It may be harmless, but right. conspiracy theories uh, can also be profoundly damaging, including yep. putting our democracy at risk. As I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. The notion that this election was stolen, 
There's not a single fact, not a single fact or piece of evidence that suggests that that's true. But, you know, polling shows that a bulk of registered Republicans think it's true. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of conspiracy theory. If a conspiracy theory is defined as something for which there is absolutely no evidence that could actually ultimately end up ending our democracy. So, right. you know, it's always worth when you laugh at a conspiracy theory, also taking into account the damage it could do if it got the kind of widespread adoption that Trump was trying to get conspiracy theorists to adopt. Yeah. And in that vein, you know, we've talked about a whole range of issues here in this conversation, but we've also touched on what you just said, which is whether you're talking about chips or UFOs or digital currencies or any number of the issues you work on, there is this sort of looming tower of hundreds of your colleagues don't believe in that basic notion that you count up all the votes. Maybe you have some court cases to see if the votes were counted properly. But at the end of the day, if the courts say yes and the voters say yes, the answer is yes or no, whatever the case may be, right? How do you keep your eye on the ball while also saying, I have to worry about this threat to our democracy or what I interpret as a threat to our democracy, um, while also staying focused on the half a dozen issues we just discussed? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. You know, I was I was sort of thinking to myself as we were talking about all the legislative achievements around climate change and drug pricing and investing in chips. You know, that would be a pretty good record um, in a time of prosperity and calm. You know, let's talk about like the mid 1990s. We got that stuff done when our democracy was wobbling, you know, Mm -hmm. where one of our two parties decided collectively to abandon the idea that we should have peaceful transfers of power, that we ought to be fact-based in the way we think about policy. Um, and so that sort of leads to the answer to your question, which is it's, it's almost like I feel like I have two different jobs, you know, and, mm. and, and one job is getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, cyber protection of how we regulate, you know, cryptocurrencies or <laughs> invest in chips companies. The other side is just like, oh my God, how do we how do we reestablish sanity in a way that, you know, that, that rebuilds our, our democracy? And that's a much harder, I mean, I know what I do, right? I, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I'm in this business is that I'm a reasonably good communicator, right? So I spend a lot of time on television and others saying, you know, trying to make it clear that what occurred on January 6th, I should say on and around, right. it wasn't just a bunch of guys who were angry who got out of hand. It was part of a coordinated Keystone Cops. This wasn't exactly, yeah. you know, yeah. not Ocean's you know, Eleven here, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was Keystone Cops, but it was a coup attempt, right? Yeah. You know, you had John Eastman, a formerly respected law professor, providing a, an absurd legal rationale. You had people like Rudy Giuliani, as silly as he is, he he speaks to a lot of people. Right. You, know, you really, you know, you had an attempt to influence the, um, you know, the registrars in places like Georgia and Arizona. You know, if we laugh at that, um, it will happen again, and it. Mm-hmm could succeed. And uh, that's not a world I want to live in. So, you know, it is, it does sometimes feel like two different jobs and I have to approach it differently. Right. I mean, Michael, you know, you've been around for a long time and you've, you've, you and I have done a lot of work together. I feel passionately about having a policy debate in a civil and respectful way. Mm -hmm. And if you want to talk about the right level of taxation and Pell grants and national security, and you disagree with me, God bless you. I, I, you know, I, I really relish the opportunity to trade ideas with you in a civil way. But if you want to say that, you know, uh, the Congress of the United States, uh, that Ted Cruz um, has the right or the vice president has the right to um, to interfere in a presidential election, I'm not compromising on that Mm. stuff. Right. And by the way, I'm going to I'm not going to just be kind of civil and quiet. I'm going to shout it from the rooftops because. You know, our democracy doesn't end when tanks roll into Lafayette Square. That's not the way our democracy ends. Our democracy ends because 
you have a more competent Donald Trump with less ridiculous people around him, people smarter than Rudy Giuliani. That's the way our democracy ends. And we mm-hmm. just need to be sensitive to that fact. Mm-hmm. So um, we want to wrap things up here because I know we have to be respectful of your time. Uh, we'll end on a lighter note. Uh, you know, you're, you're out and about in the fourth district quite a bit. We have listeners in the fourth district and, and from beyond. Uh, fall's coming up. Tell me about the ideal fall day in the, in the fourth district. What's sort of the Rushmore of, you know, is, is it Colony Pizza? Is it Brewport? Is it one of the town's fall fairs? What a, in between saving the democracy and investigating UFOs and passing the chips act, <laughs> where does Congressman Jim Himes go to recharge a bit and maybe, maybe grab a cold one? Yeah, yeah. You know, gosh, I wish I could. You went straight to pizza, you know, and if you start with pizza, I just have to go to New Haven and that's not in the district. So we're yeah, going to set aside the now colony pizza is worth doing. But, you know, the, 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 the global capital of pizza is just outside yeah. of my district in New Haven, Connecticut. So I'll tell you what I love to do. Um, and, you know, it's not there's not going to be a whole lot of this between now and Election Day. I hope for any of us because we've got a lot of work to do. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a weekend in the fourth district, you know, whatever season it is, got to get down to the Long Island Sound. And if you want to go sailing, go swimming, you know, go paddle boarding, rent a kayak. You know, we've got six or seven rivers, all of which are wonderful kayaking. You know, take advantage of this incredible gift that we have. Uh, I happen to love shellfishing in season. I'll go get oysters and, mm-hmm. and, and clams, and then I make clam chowder, oysters on the half shell. But you can do what you want to do. But do that. Get outside. Really take advantage of, of what is truly unique about, about, the, uh, about our area, which is the coastline. And then, oh, my gosh, then you got to go to a restaurant, right? And mm-hmm. one of the wonderful things about the cities, Bridgeport, Norwalk, and Stanford, is they all just have terrific uh, restaurants. By the way, they've got terrific brew, brew pubs. Let me, let me uh, probably... Uh, I couldn't do this in my official capital uh, capacity, but half full <laughs> brewery. I'm not, I'm not in the business of making uh, commercial yeah. endorsements, but you know, right in Stanford, you've got half full brewery where they're brewing beer. Uh, you know, they've got a place called third place where you can go and order a little bit of food. And, you know, my point is that after you've taken advantage of all the stuff you can do on the outside, uh, we've really yeah. become a wonderful place to grab a beer to, uh, I'm not going to go to pizza, but to get some great food. Right. A few of those uh, establishments, Sally's and, and Pepe's have little outposts now in our, in, in your district, but uh, they do. we'll, uh, we'll say we'll, we'll allow, we'll allow Rosa to keep the pizza. So uh, we want to say thank you so much, Congressman, for being here. Uh, we really appreciate the wide ranging conversation and we'll be there. We'll hope to see you in the coming weeks and months, hopefully helping you get reelected. Thanks so much, Michael. Take care now. Well, you have it. It's an overview of CD4. It is a discussion of UFOs and, of course, the hard policy stuff on uh, Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act, and more. Mike, that was a heck of a talk. It, you know, it was. It was, it was kind of scattershot, but I thought we tied it all together pretty well. And he's, he's someone who, you know, if you've seen him on television, if you've seen him on, in those hearing settings, he's very good at being able to draw a line, straight line through all those things. And good at keeping it lighthearted, too. I, I don't know if you saw this. He actually... Uh, he started a TikTok page a couple weeks ago with his campaign interns. He's uh, at Jim underscore unplugged on TikTok, um, and he's he's done a couple a couple of trendy videos. He did the um, uh, what's the one where like you know it's like the Italian music. It's like things that just make sense in our campaign headquarters, um, which is pretty cool. You know, Trevor Crow. I I'm not the biggest TikToker, but I noticed that she also has a TikTok, and it's called Trevor for Senate where she has all these different videos. Some are about uh, Tales from the Trails. That's her little pet trays. And then she also has this very cool video she uploaded a few days ago where she's um, into ice skating, which is really cool. So I think everybody should check out her TikTok as well. 
Yeah, sometimes on social media you get a lot of that. You get like a, a little more uh, flavor to the candidate, right? When they're when they're talking about door knocking or if you see them in debates or that kind of stuff, it's all going to be policy, policy, policy. But on TikTok, you get the beekeeping and the ice skating and everything goes <laughs> with it. Yeah, I actually was just on her page and I saw that video of her ice skating. It's not, I feel like we shouldn't undersell this. It's not just ice skating. It, it looks like she at some point was a competitive figure skater. Yes. And has not lost, you know, a lot of speed on that fastball. Uh, she is still doing things on ice skates that if I attempted it, I would, I would hurt myself pretty badly. Absolutely. <laughs> you can see all sorts of details about all sorts of candidates uh, on the CT Dems uh, social media channels as well. Typically we're at CT Dems. Uh, search us up on uh, Twitter and on Instagram and do check out mobilize.us if you want to look for ways to pitch in and help people like Trevor, help people like Jim Himes or help Democratic candidates in your area to win. Mike, Denia, thanks for another great episode. We'll be back next week with more from Connecticut's the CT Dems podcast.